Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. In 1967, which was a little before I discovered America, something really interesting happened in our country. About 100,000 young people, the culture called them hipsters or hippies, showed up in the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood of San Francisco, and together they created something that was called the Summer of Love. Now, what was interesting about these individuals was they were trying to create a world that was different than the world that they had experienced all the way up until that time, and they wanted to demonstrate to the rest of the world that it was possible. Like a lot of groups that have complaints about the way things are, their list of challenges with the U.S. life was long, but the reason we call it the Summer of Love is because the fact that they felt like love was too complicated and it should be easier became kind of a central theme. It became kind of the message that what they had seen with their parents and, and their, the, the experience they'd had with love had too many strings attached. It was too traditional. It was too complicated. It should be easier than that. Love should be easy. Anybody should be able to experience love at any time with anyone. There shouldn't be any strings attached. Now, I'll quickly... Give them credit for the fact that they, like every other generation before them, had had decent reasons to be disappointed with what they'd seen from love. You've experienced this. If it wasn't watching your parents' relationship growing up, it was watching somebody else's relationship. But you saw people that advertised what they had in their relationship as love and what you learned was, it wasn't so great. So it's understandable that in 1967, these individuals wanted to create a better form of love. But the issue was that the type of love that they had and that they created wasn't sustainable. You know, the, in terms of the way this sociological experiment ended, if you go to the news archives for October 6th, 1967, the newspaper archives, the video archives, uh, and you look at what was happening in San Francisco, the big news story was that there was a funeral for the summer of love that announced the official ending of the summer of love. Now you would think that this would be put on by the people of San Francisco saying go home back where you came from. But it wasn't the people of the city of San Francisco that held this funeral. It was the leaders of the summer of love. And later when interviewed about it, they would say they had this funeral to signal to the world that this is over. Take the revolution back home where you came from, but don't stay here and don't come here. This experiment is over. And those who study the summer of love from a sociological perspective, the main thing, if they're being honest with you, and sometimes we tend to over-glorify these things like the summer of love in Woodstock, but if you really look at the truth of it, what was clear is that it was unsustainable on so many levels. And what you'll usually hear is that it was financially unsustainable because everything was supposed to be free, or that it was unsustainable because it strained the resources of San Francisco. 
the most important message that we should be taking from that is that this view of love was unsustainable. Now you say, Jonathan, why would you say that's the most important thing? Because here's the deal. The summer of love is just one little episode in our history, but our culture has edged closer and closer and closer and closer to the basic ideas of love that were expressed at least genuinely and authentically and upfront in the summer of love. We sometimes hold these views, but more quietly, and we may not advertise them, but there is a sense in which our culture in 2020 believes that you should be able to experience love at any time with anyone. If it quits working, no problem, go and start it with somebody else. If you think about the beginning of the summer of love and the end of the summer of love, because the message was come out here, come out here, come out here, and at the end of the summer it was go home, go home, go home. There must be at least two kinds of love. Because you don't want to take it away from these individuals that there was love in their hearts. Here's the deal. While they expressed it in a way that I don't think is a godly way, the truth is, it would be wrong to say that what some of them experienced in the summer of love was love. Let's not, let's, let's not distill it down too quickly. But on the other hand, is that the kind of love that's sustainable? There must be two kinds of love. And before you think that I'm making fun or trying to take a jab at somebody who was there in the summer of love, let me tell you, I've experienced this myself. I want to show you two pictures. First picture is of me and my beautiful bride, Wendy. This is in 2002. I'm going to go ahead and put up the other one. This is of Wendy and I on vacation a few weeks ago. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're thinking that we haven't changed a bit, and I appreciate you saying that. Um, I, I think it's obvious, too, but I wasn't going to say it, but thank you, for, thank you for feeling that way. So the thing about it is, this is the same couple, and both couples are in love. But love to this couple is different than love to that couple. If you sit down with Jonathan and Wendy in 2002, we were in love, but the love that we would have described for you would have been different than the love that we would describe for you now in 2020. The love that we have here is a first date, first kiss. By the way, this is one of our first times out as a couple. Um, it's a first date, first kiss, first everything kind of love, the kind of love where you spend hours on the phone talking to each other and daring each other to hang up first, the kind of love where you've got the sort of hormonal pixie dust that God sprinkles over new relationships where everything seems rosy and wonderful. And we would tell you that that's what it was. You sit down, listen, I've been doing premarital counseling now for 10 years. You sit down with a couple who is kind of in a new relationship and you ask them about the love they have for each other and try to decipher it because it makes no sense. Right? It's an it factor to them. It's a feeling. It's something that just has happened and brings them together. But that's not the kind of love you'll hear from a couple that's been together for 18 years. We have the kind of love that comes from having two wonderful kids together, through going through, going through life's highs and lows together, through crying together about disappointments and having fun together in the middle of life's highs. We've experienced a different kind of love. There must be, legitimately, two kinds of love. Well, it's not just the two kinds of love that we look at from the summer of love or from me and Wendy, but the truth is there must be one kind of love that we talk about in our culture and one kind of love that God talks about. Because if you try to make the two overlap, something doesn't work. Let me show you what I'm talking about. This is in 1 Corinthians 13, where the apostle Paul says, love endures through every circumstance. Love lasts forever. As a matter of fact, he's going to be explicit about it in verse 13. He says, three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love, those three things have no end. And as a matter of fact, the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest permanent 
gift in a relationship. My question to you is, has that been your experience? Has it been your experience that love never ends? Or have you found that at least in our culture, love has a relatively short shelf life? In our culture, about 39% of marriages are ending in divorce. Now that's from the most recent census data. And I have to be honest with you, as somebody who works a lot with married couples, I'm thrilled for the fact that as compared to 20 years ago, this number seems to be going down. 20 years ago, we were a lot closer to 50%. I have to tell you, though, I think there's a story behind the numbers. 20 years ago, it was less common for couples to live together before they got married. So couples were getting married younger. And so now we have couples that are living together as though they are married and splitting up, but they're not hitting those divorce numbers. So I got to be honest with you, while I want to celebrate the fact that we're down to 39%, I'm not sure the story has changed much. So let's go with the conservative number. Let's go with 39%. If 39% of marriages are ending in divorce, four out of 10, my question for you is what happened to love will last forever? I'll tell you what I think. I think there must be at least two kinds of love. And we're going to talk about that in this message. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to take a moment to talk about the difference between love in our language, which is used as a Swiss Army knife tool to talk about a lot of different things. I'm going to talk about love in the Bible in the original languages, but I want to be upfront with you and authentic and honest and tell you I'm not a biblical language scholar. But at least I have a passing knowledge enough to kind of go through this with you, and hopefully I'll be of some help to you. Like I said, love in the English language is a Swiss army knife of words, right? So in one sentence, I can say that I love my wife and children, and in the next sentence, I can say that I love potato chips, which is obviously true. I love potato chips, right? But in the Greek language, we get a lot more specific. So when somebody says that they love someone or they love something, they have to make a choice about what kind of love they're talking about. Now, I'm going to introduce you to four Greek words, um, and the first two are very similar, and the last two are very similar. The first one is epithemia, which means red, hot, passion, lust, right? And the next word is eros, which means sexual desire. Now, these two words kind of are on a parallel path because they sort of mean the same thing. This is the fiery, hot, hormonal side of love. Love sort of flows with the hormones. But this type of love is one that tends to have extremely short shelf life, extremely short, right? But this is what we're talking about when we talk about somebody who thinks somebody's hot and they love them because they're hot, right? And that will change over time, right? I used to have hair, right? It will change over time. The second two are similar as well. Storge, which means warm affection. If you have a dog, you know what storge is. If you have a cat, I have no idea what to tell you on that. But if you have a dog, you know what storge is because you have warm feelings of affection for your dog and your dog has warm feelings of affection for you. I have two dogs at home and they both have warm feelings of affection for me. I don't think they like each other very much, but they both have warm feelings of affection for me. Right? Now... In, in a passage in the, in the scripture, there's a point at which there's a, a mention of sociopaths in the scripture, and it says that these individuals will be astorge, which means lacking this warm affection, this natural affection, right? Now, the, the final word, and again, this is akin to storge, is the word philia or phileo, which means the love of deep friendship. So if you have a best friend, and it's been oh, six, year, six, six, six years, six months, a year since last time you spent time with them. You get together and you spend the day, and you really light up all the circuits of philia. You feel that warm glow of love that comes from spending time with a deep friend. 
Now, these are four important words for love, but there's one more that we need to cover. And if you've had any uh, experience in the church or in Christian life, you've probably heard of this one before. It's called agape. And agape is described for us in the scripture, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But if you want to zoom out and just describe it in, in sort of a macro way, we would just say that it's God's love. It's the type of love that God has for us, that God extends to us. Now, immediately, as we're looking at this, we could draw a line down and we immediately have our two kinds of love, don't we? Because if you look at epithemia, eros, storge, philia, all of these are feelings, feelings of passion, feelings of sexual desire, feelings of warm affection, feelings of deep friendship. But agape, on the other hand, is, is different. It's not a feeling. Agape is not a feeling. Let me show you what I mean by this. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to spend a little bit of time in 1 Corinthians 13 today, but just going over it quickly up front. The Bible says that love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. So what I want you to notice is that nowhere in that passage do we talk about how agape feels. Because agape is not a feeling. The others are. We've experienced the feelings of passion. Right When you were dating and you felt that hormonal euphoria, that, that tingle of being with the other person, we've experienced the feeling of loving to be around our friends, of, of loving our neighbor, and, and just that warmth of being around people that we care about. But agape is not a feeling. Agape is a behavior. It's a choice. It's a decision. So we could say that there are two kinds of love. This is what we've been dancing around so far. There's two kinds of love. One is a feeling kind of love, and the other is a doing kind of love. Now, what did we say was wrong with the love in the summer of love? We said it wasn't sustainable. See, the thing about a feeling kind of love is that we should know when we think about feelings we, we all know this internally, that we go through a sort of feeling roller coaster, don't we? We feel one way today, we feel a different way tomorrow, we might, you know, and this is what happens. I'll have a couple come and sit in my office, and I'll be doing marriage coaching with them, and I'll have one of them tell me, and I'm not criticizing them for saying this, but, but this is kind of where we are as a culture, that that person will say to me, I don't feel love for them anymore, and I don't know if I can ever feel love for them anymore. And what is happening is there's a sort of passive, temperature-taking sort of love that says, I wonder if I'm in love today. And we inventory the feelings, and if the feelings aren't there, then we don't think we have the ability to love. It's not sustainable. What I want to tell you is that while God has called us to love, God has never called us to feel love. Feeling love happens. Doing love is what God has called us to. He's called us to that in our family. He's called us to that in our marriage. He's called us to that at work. He's called us to that on social media. He's called us to that with our neighbors. That's what we're called to. Now, why this is a problem is it has to do with the questions we ask when we're getting into a relationship. And I want to just take a minute and say, if you're listening to this series and you're thinking, oh no, this is a series all about marriage, I'm not married, we're going to talk next week about finding the right person. So hang on, we're going we're to spend some time looking exactly at that. But, but just as sort of a teaser for where we're going there, what happens, because we've sort of 
attuned ourselves to an unsustainable kind of love, what happens is we ask the wrong questions in our relationships. So the question that most people are asking in a relationship is, what will love do for me? Now here's the thing. I've done all different sorts of premarital curriculums in my, in my time at New Spring. And one thing they all have in common is we all want to help these couples think through the expectations they have of marriage. There's nothing wrong with that. However, we need to be careful not to become obsessed with expectations. And a lot of times that's where love leads us. In, when, it, when love is unsustainable and it's a feeling, we begin to ask ourselves, what can I expect from love? What am I going to get from this relationship? And suddenly we start to wield the very heavy power of the word should in the relationship. The other person should do this if they love me. They should do this if they love me. Why don't they do the things that they ought to do? Why aren't they the person that I need them to be? Because the question we're asking is, what will love do for me? The question we should be asking from a biblical standpoint, from an agape standpoint, is what will love require of me? I've done so many weddings. I've stood on this stage and performed so many weddings and I I look at that bright-eyed couple and I think to myself, I'm so excited for them. I celebrate this moment with them, but I hope they understand what this commitment is gonna require of them. It is going to take more than either of them can imagine right now to stay in this relationship, to love each other. They're feeling all kinds of stuff on this stage, and they should. It's their wedding day. That's wonderful. But they're promising a life of doing for each other. When I do premarital, I have them look at each other, and I say, here's the thing. Here's what I want you to understand. Of all the other people in the world, You're promising that of every other human being out there, this is the human being you want to serve for the rest of your life. You're going to serve God first. The second second thing is you're going to serve this person for the rest of your life. Is this the person you are prepared to serve for the rest of your life and feed them off of a tray at the nursing home someday? Because it's going to happen. That's part of what promising forever is about. What will love require of me? See, here's the thing. This guy, I know because I was there, This guy has all the feelings, all the feelings. But the doing, you'd have to talk to this guy about. Because I didn't know back then what the doing was going to be. Let me sort of put a different spin on this. So we talk about the feelings, the passion, the desire, the affection. Then we talk about the doing kind of love, God's love, which we talked about a little bit before. Let Let me give you a different way to think about this. Over here on this table, I have something that we borrowed from an automotive parts store. Very kind of them to loan it to us. Those of you who've worked on cars, I was a mechanic before I went into the ministry. Those of you who've worked on cars, you know that what this is, I'm going to hold it up so you can see it, although this one is particularly heavy. This is an automotive starter. So unless you are particularly environmentally sensitive and drive an electric car, you have one of these in your vehicle. And this has a little gear, you can sort of see right here, that will actually... For a moment, using this very powerful motor, spin all the gear work of the engine of your car long enough for all the integrated systems of the engine to kick in and start doing their job. Now, the engine is what is designed to propel the car down the road. The starter is powerful, but not powerful enough to propel your car. If you tried to propel your car with a starter, it would burn up like that. It's just powerful enough to get things started. See, the thing about it is, 
The feelings, and this is really a matter of attraction. These things are things that attract us in relationship. But attraction is a good starter, but not a good engine. It gets the relationship going so that all of these things we're talking about that are part of God's love can start to work together and can start to take the form that they need to take in the relationship for it to be real, sustainable love. What we have in our culture is a group of folks that are trying to drive the relationship on the starter and then we stand around and we ask, why are these relationships burning out? We know why the relationships are burning out. It's not the real thing. It's not God love. For those of you that are married and you're struggling with the feelings of love, you don't feel it the way that you once did, can I encourage you to think about love in a new way? Instead of thinking about love in a passive, it either happens to me or doesn't happen to me way, think about love in an active way. See, love doesn't just happen to you. But that's how a lot of people talk to me about it. Love is something you fall into or you fall out of or you feel love one day and you don't feel love another day. I don't know if I have love for them or don't have love for them. And in a sense, they're talking to me about it in such a passive way. It's like the joke about the person who says that they got in an accident because the mailbox jumped out in front of their car and hit it. We're talking about something as though we have no control over it when we have a lot of control over it. Actually, I would encourage you to think about the fact that lasting love is a gift that you fight to give someone. You fight to give them the gift of love. You say, Jonathan, uh, sure you're not being a little dramatic there? I mean, I get the gift part, but the fighting to give love is, you sure it's not a little bit overboard, a little dramatic? Well, let's, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13. Let's look at the first sentence. Love is patient and kind. Does that come natural to you? Doesn't come natural to me. I grew up in a house of all boys. My mom was outnumbered. And something you should know about a house with all boys, that when you are leaving the house to go somewhere, there isn't a lot of prep time. There's not a lot going on there. When I was a kid, growing up, you were going someplace, right? All I had to do is throw some clothes on, put a comb through my hair. I was ready to go, out the door. And then Wendy and I got married and we had two girls. So now the the situation has reversed. Now I'm in a house full of girls, right? Now our two Dogs are boys, so we're, we're catching up, but still outnumbered. And in my house, I learned that when you have a house full of girls, there are two events. There's the event that you're going to, and then there's the event of getting ready to go to the thing that you're going to. Now, to be fair, my girls, my, my wife and my daughters have never made me late to anything. As far as I know, they've never made me late by getting ready. But I have this weird Hoover gene within me that says, if you're not early, you're not on time. And because I still am what I was at 12, when I get ready to go somewhere, I just throw on some clothes and run a comb. I don't, I don't run a comb through my hair anymore. But I, all I have to do is throw on some clothes and I'm ready to go, right? Then I, I watch as there's a little bit more preparation for the girls to get ready. They're talking about scrunchies and bows and, and uh, nail polish and all this other stuff that I, I just don't understand. Now, if I was patient and kind, what I would do is I would ask my lovely bride, do you need anything from me? Can I help you? And if she said no, what I would say is, I'm just going to go wait in the car for you and I'll be ready to go. Whenever you're ready to go, please take your time. Instead, I tend to make like I'm listening to some great music and tap my foot and stand there and wait for her to get ready because it's not easy to be patient and kind. Actually, And I think most married couples will understand what I say when I say that if you default to what feels right, you will find that eventually you become pretty impatient and sometimes you become pretty mean. Being patient and kind is something you have to fight for. 
Love is not jealous, which means we don't, we don't get hung up on what the other person has and wish we had it. It's not boastful or proud. Now, we need to camp out there for a second because here when we're talking about being boastful or proud, we're talking about coming to the place where you see yourself as better than the other person. Well, now that's really interesting. John Gottman is a famous yeoman researcher who did some of the first longitudinal research on marriage. And through his research, he was eventually able to predict which couples would get divorced and which ones wouldn't with 94% accuracy, which is pretty amazing. But he would say that the number one indicator of a marriage that's headed for divorce is a culture of contempt. And if you pin him down and ask him, what does he mean by contempt? Dr. Gottman says, it is coming to the point that you think you're better than the other person and expressing it to them. Well, isn't it interesting that all the way back when scripture was written, before we had this research, what is the scripture saying? Love is the opposite of coming to the conclusion that you're better than the other person, except sometimes we do that and we become sarcastic with the other person or we give them little jabs that we start to show them ways in which we think they have not lived up to our standard and we keep that over their head and hold it over their head of what they have to somehow rise to the occasion and become. Or rude. Rude. We, we have this weird thing in our culture, and I, I just don't know where it comes from. We have this weird thing in our culture where we think that the people that we are most familiar with, that we live in a house with, should be the ones that we filter the least with. There, there are people that are watching this right now that if your kids talk to other adults the way that you talk to your kids, you would be profoundly embarrassed. But if I were to call you on that, you would say, it's okay, they're my kids. As if to say, I'm familiar with them, they live in the house with me, I love them, so if I love them, shouldn't I have a right to talk to them this way? Somebody watching this right now, that if your spouse talked to somebody else the way that you talked to your spouse, you would be just red-faced. I can't believe they said that. But it's normal to you that you talk to your spouse that way because you love them. And yet the scripture says, It's the opposite of being rude. The person you should filter the most with, and when I say filter, I don't mean holding back your true self. What I mean is being careful about being gracious with the other person. See, part of grace is understanding that God could, God could be very short and direct with us and be very mean with us and still be authentic, but he doesn't choose to be that way. He is gracious with us in his authenticity. Some of us are, are, we think that I can't be authentic and gracious. Well, if God can, we can be authentic and gracious. It does not demand its own way. And here we need to stop for a second and talk to the person who's watching this who is a natural born leader. Because if you're a natural born leader, you are incredibly successful at work and everybody around the table looks at you for the decision because you've got a little bit of alpha in you. You've got a little bit of that dominant characteristic and it plays wonderfully at work because you're good at what you do. But this is one of many areas that what, is, what makes you powerful at work will make you vulnerable at home because suddenly what will happen is you'll be in a family where everybody says, well, whatever dad says is what we have to do or whatever mom says goes, you know, it's dad's way or the highway and that's not what love is. We have to be careful to make sure that we don't live in in a situation where we're so demanding that nobody else has room to breathe in the relationship. It's not irritable. It means it's not moody. You know, I've met some people I, over my years of doing couples coaching, I've had some people that wear moodiness like a, like a badge of honor. 
I'm just moody sometimes. Well, okay. So you're not very loving, apparently. Because love is choosing not to be moody and not to be irritable. Now, what does it mean to be irritable? Now, anybody can be pushed too far. So you don't want to be the person who says, I will put up with anything that anybody does in my life because that will put you in a relationship with an abuser. That's not usually the problem. The problem is usually that we say, this is the profile of the kind of person I want in my life. And it is so narrow that nobody can live up to it. And if they step one foot out of it, we become angry. That's being irritable. And then it keeps no record of being wrong. I've worked with some couples before in my office. They come in and we spend an hour wasting time with the two of them doing nothing but replaying for me the history of everything the other person's done that's made them upset. Now, to be, to be fair, I'm fine with talking about history in a couple's past. I'm fine with that, so long as it's gonna help us with the present or help us with the future, but that's not what this is about. This is about now there is a new set of ears in the room, so it's time to rewind the tapes and play it back through so that the spouse can be drugged through the mud of what's happened in the past. That's not real love does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. This means that you don't celebrate an unfair advantage. Someone watching this, you have something you could hold over your spouse's head. And you know it's like the, the, the power play. It's the ace up your sleeve. If you ever feel yourself one down in the relationship, all you have to do is go to that thing that you know you can hold over their head and all of a sudden you're back up in a position of power and you you start to celebrate that. I always have this that I can always go back to, but that's not real love. Real love doesn't carry that ace around so that it can give me the upper hand in the relationship. And then it finally says, love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Literally in the Greek, this says, love always stands, always believes, always stays. Always stands, always believes, always stays. Now what do we mean when we say always believes? I have couples who come to my office and they say they want to work on their communication. It's very common. It's one of the main reasons people come into a counseling session. They want to work on their communication. And I have tools and techniques and books and, you know, give them a video on Fight Proof Your Marriage. I can give them a video series I have on four techniques for listening, all this stuff that I have. Can I just cut to the chase? If you want to have better communication, I'm going to give you a one sentence key and this will fix it. This will fix your communication problem. One sentence. Here it is. You ready? One sentence. Choose to believe the best about the other person. That'll fix your communication problem. Because almost all communication problems are based on the fact that we choose to believe something short of the best about the other person. My wife did this for me the other day. We were, we were having a discussion, and she looked at me and she said, Jonathan, I love you with all my heart, and I do not think you expected me to hear that the way that you just said it. I want you to rewind and go back and say it again differently this time. That is what I'm talking about, believing the best about the other person, not running with a message that you caught that you think you caught the wrong way and going for the touchdown and saying, all right, now we're going to go into conflict zone, instead choosing to believe the best about the other person. That'll fix your communication problem. Now, we're almost done, but let's take this to a broader place, shall we? Because we're talking about marriage, sure, we're talking about marriage, but especially in one of the most emotionally charged seasons of our nation ever, we should understand that God didn't just command us to agape our spouse. He commanded us to agape our neighbor, which basically means anybody that you're coming into contact with. This is in John 
chapter 13. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. This is Jesus speaking. Now I'm giving you a new commandment. Agape each other. Just as I have agape you, you should agape each other. And this is what's huge. This is massive. If you want to know how to have an impact on this world, so many people think that having an impact on this world means typing a brilliant social media post. Forget that. I don't care if you type something that's viral. Something else will be viral tomorrow. If you want to make an impact on the world, show the world that you're God's child. And this is how you can do it. The Bible says your agape for one another will prove to the world that you are my followers. You want to show the world that you're different? This is how you do it. Here's the deal. I know somebody's watching this at home and you're thinking, you know, Jonathan, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking with you. I'm tracking with you. And I heard some things that you were just talking about where I need to make some improvements, but I don't, I'm not sure if I can. I'm not sure if I can love the way that God wants me to love. I got a lot of work in that area to do. Can I take you to Philippians 4.13? This is another passage from the Apostle Paul where he says, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. First time I read that as a kid, I thought, okay, great. I'm gonna go lift the piano now. Didn't quite work out. And the reason for that is what this verse is saying is whatever God puts you in a place to do, he will make sure you have the capability to do it. Another way of saying that is if God calls you to it, he'll help you do it. If God calls you to it, he'll help you do it. So God didn't just give you a mandate to love your spouse. God is gonna equip you to love your spouse if you want to, but you gotta want to. He didn't just... He didn't just call you to love your neighbor. He's going to equip you to love your neighbor. I want to just close with a quick story and then we'll be done. It's a story that was told by my pastor in Oklahoma when I first started serving in the ministry. And it's one I've kept dear to, my, dear to me for some time. He talked about the story of a young little boy, little boy, who was very, very terrified by bad weather. And in the Midwest, it's just a... Just a reality, something we all have to deal with. The thunderstorms announce themselves pretty loudly to our kids, and if they're anxious of storms, they're going to know it. And this is what happened with this little boy. So one night, a particularly bad storm rolled in, and it was late, as it always is with the thunderstorm. And uh, this mother is just has other things to do, and she's trying to calm this little boy down. So she, you know, she's just just close your eyes and you know think sweet thoughts, and it's going to be okay. And, and eventually, after none of that worked, she did what all of us parents do when we've gone through all, everything else that we've tried, nothing's worked, we get spiritual, and she says to her, to her little son, she says, look, you're going to be fine, God is going to take care of you. And as she gets up to leave, this little boy throws his arms around his mom and says, but I need God with skin on. I need God with skin on. I think we all kind of need that. I was performing a wedding the other day and I, as I was looking at that groom and bride, I, I told that young lady, I said, there will be moments where your husband is discouraged in life and he would give anything to hear the voice of God whisper in his ear and say it's okay, but the voice he's gonna hear is yours because you can be a flesh and blood extension of God's love in his life. I looked at him and I said, there are going to be moments when your wife would do anything to have the touch of God comforting her in a difficult time, but the touch she's going to feel is your hand in hers or your arm around her shoulder. That will be the flesh and blood extension of Jesus' love in her life. Parents, our kids are going through a time that we haven't lived through as kids. We don't know what it's like to experience the anxiety of seeing the world do what it's doing right now from their vantage point. 
your kid's a God follower, probably there is nothing more that they would love than to have God tell them it's going to be okay and put his arms around them and and make them feel comforted. But you know what? The voice they should be hearing is yours and the arms they should be feeling is yours because you can be a flesh and blood extension of Jesus' love in their life if you want to be. I've been talking about God's love this entire time because it's the most powerful thing in the world. It's the thing that lasts forever. It's more important than anything else. If you're watching this right now and you say, you know what, Jonathan, I really want to have that love in my life. Well, that's something that, here's what I want you to know. This is the most important part, the most important thing anybody will ever tell you about God. God wants to have a relationship with you so badly, he has done everything possible except say yes for you because he can't do that. The only thing he can't do is say yes for you and that's what he's waiting for. And if you want to say yes to God's love right now, we can do that together. I'm going to say words to a real simple prayer and you can follow along with this if you want to have a relationship with God. Let's do that right now, okay? Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died and came back to life for me. I know I do wrong things. I know I can't save myself. Today I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I'm making a choice to believe in you and to follow you. In Jesus' name. If you just prayed that prayer with me, you just made the biggest decision in your life, there isn't anything more important than that. Do us a favor, would you? Would you text the word PRAYED to 97000? We want to make sure to help equip you to start your life with God. We have something we'd like to send out to you. If you're in the continental U.S., we've got a a package we want to send to you. If you're outside that, we have some digital materials we can send to you. But we want to be a blessing to you as you start off on this wonderful new journey with God. Thank you for watching. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.